Hello, I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the March 22nd, 2021 edition of Digging Out. This program's getting us past November 3rd, December 3rd, January 6th, 21, January 2021, and we must add March 16th and beyond. With my guests, we can collectively clear the debris from the last four days, four weeks, four years, and last 400 years. Let me introduce my guest now. She is Karamit Reiter, a professor with appointments at UC Irvine's Department of Criminology, Law and Society and UCI's Law School. And as director, she has been building the recently launched Lifted, the prison education program in the UC system. Today, she brings a crowbar to pry open the experiences of those involved in various ways with the incarcerated population, including detainees themselves, during this COVID pandemic. Karamit studies prisons, prisoners' rights, and the impact of prison and punishment on individuals, communities, and legal systems. Her research is based on interviews, archival and legal analysis, and the data analysis documenting the history and impact of criminal justice policies. She's worked on, she's worked as an associate at Human Rights Watch and has testified before state and federal legislatures. She comes to us today from her home in Long Beach. Welcome to Digging Out and back to KUCI Karamit Writer. Thank you so much for having me, Claudia. We are recording this on March 19th. So the 49,168 reported cases of COVID amongst our detained population, plus all the up-to-date stats and trends, what would you want to relay to add to that number? Well, I should say, I'm looking at the California State Prison website right now, and it's already higher, 49,190. And that is what we've been seeing over the last year, is just the number of confirmed infections in prison systems across the country, and especially in California, ticking up and up and up. And the deaths also, the deaths in California right now are 216 who've died of COVID-19 and across the country, it's exponentially more than that. And you know, I think one important piece to understand is not just the death rate and how high it sounds and the infection rate, but how much higher it is in the general population. So a recent study found that prisoners are five times as likely to experience COVID infection as the general population and three times as likely to die. So those are pretty shocking statistics. And when you go, folks, we're going to talk about how to get there and how to interact. Uh, we're talking about interacting with it now is prison pandemic is that to that point about the numbers, when you wave your cursor over different parts of the California map of these detention centers that, that I mean, it's an enormously high proportion that you can see with some, especially it's 60 out of 100. I mean, the numbers are huge. Absolutely. You know, disturbingly, people are talking just in the last few days about the prison systems reaching herd immunity because so many people have been infected within these closed facilities. But yes, in some facilities, it's been well over half of the population with confirmed positive infection. Well, this kind of density that's creating these circumstances, the detainees are in very tight quarters with each other. And so that 
sort of kicks up the degree of vulnerability that our incarcerated population is experiencing. So it's, it's sort of complicated, isn't it, Karamit? Getting broad acceptance of managing, that is when we talk about the distribution of vaccines, managing this distribution in the prison population that to put a priority on distributing vaccines where they are very vulnerable versus people's construct of them not being deserving. Sort of that, and I'm thinking of that adage, Karamet, about the measure of a society is how it treats its most vulnerable. And I'm afraid those incarcerated don't even make that cut in most people's eyes. It's true. And this is, I'm really glad you're asking about vaccines because <laughs> it's important on so many levels. And I think it's a good kind of door into thinking about the challenges of the pandemic in prison. So, you know, as you suggested, one of the problems in prison is that they're just overcrowded. A few years ago, there was federal litigation that went all the way to the Supreme Court, finding that our prisons in California were so overcrowded that one prisoner a week was dying unnecessarily from lack of medical care. So you can imagine you put a pandemic into that situation and how much worse things become very quickly. Um, another aspect of it, of course, is that prisons and nursing homes have a remarkable number of similarities, right? They are closed institutions where people are not free to come and go. And so that means that when one germ gets in there, it can spread really quickly. And another aspect is that people don't always think about this, but people who are in prison have a lot of medical vulnerabilities the way that people in a nursing home might. Of course, it's not always aging, although we have a very quickly aging prison population, but people in prison tend to be less healthy than the general population of the country. And, and that means that they have many, many vulnerabilities that make them more vulnerable to something like COVID-19. But the thing that is so important to understand about vaccines is, and, and I think what the population has had a hard time grasping throughout the entirety of the pandemic is that even though people in prison are not free to leave, that doesn't mean those institutions are closed off from our society and that we're protected from them, right? And the fact is that every day staff go in and out of these facilities and that's often how the virus has entered these facilities and it's how the virus comes back into our society. And so I think, you know, whatever you think about whether prisoners are deserving or not, as a citizen who's invested in limiting the spread of COVID-19 in our communities, my first choice of who to vaccinate would be everyone who lives or works in a prison because I think they have been real hotbeds of spread that we, you know, you look at the New York Times and you see that many prisons have been the sources of the biggest COVID outbreaks and that communities in surrounding areas have subsequently had high infection rates. I think it's going to be a long time before we have the data to establish causality, but it sure looks like these facilities are a source of spread and danger and vaccination is a way to limit that. <laughs> um, so, you know, as I, I would happily give my vaccine to someone who lives or works at a prison. <laughs> yes. And I should say, I said citizens, but I think residents is a more accurate term to capture everyone who lives and works in the United States and our vulnerabilities if we don't treat people who are incarcerated and who work in prisons with respect as part of our broader public health communities. Okay, thanks. So for those of you who've just joined us, my guest on Digging Out is Karamet Ryder, UCI professor of criminology, law, and society, and also an appointment at UCI School of Law and Director of Lifted, the prison education program in the UC system, talking today about prison pandemic, stories from the inside an ongoing project compiling voices of and about incarcerated people in California. Well, listening to 
some of the pieces, I have many, many, many more I, I do want to hear, I hear the pronoun they, and so I want for us to understand who the they is capturing, so we know whose jurisdictions, who's giving directions, who's responsible in managing this incarcerated population during especially this pandemic. Mm -hmm. And and so people who are incarcerated often say they did this or they did that. And I, I think they tend to be referring to a number of players. Uh, you know, and we can think of this from a kind of a local to a state level scale. I think at the local level, they're talking about staff, correctional officers who work in their facilities and are imposing certain policies, often requiring regular tests often putting people into isolation or solitary confinement if they test positive, restricting visits and access to family. And so sometimes that they is just the immediate staff in the prison who are implementing very restrictive policies as a result of the pandemic. And sometimes the they is a broader set of administrators and elected officials, um, the warden, the secretary of corrections, the people who oversee the prisons in the state, and even the governor and the legislators and the judges who may or may not step in to intervene to try to create conditions for better health and better safety so that they can have a lot of different meanings depending on the context. But I, I think there are many players in the experience of incarceration that people who are incarcerated are, are very aware of. So being that pandemics are public health crises, it has an impact on everyone, including those in, in your capacity as an educator and inside detention centers, and as an advocate inside and outside these centers, talk about how you started compiling these accounts, Karamet. Absolutely. And uh, this has been a truly inspiring collaborative team effort. So I'll talk a little about that, but let me give you a history of how the group of us working on this came to it. I started it with two faculty, Kristen Turney in sociology and Naomi Sugia in my department in criminology law and society. And we first came to these issues as scholars of prisons who were aware of what was happening in March and April of last year in our prisons and really horrified and talking together and saying, what can we as people who care about these communities, understand what's happening in these communities, how can we raise awareness? And we started talking with two doctoral students that we work closely with, Gabe Rosales, who is one of the co-founders of Underground Scholars, the formerly incarcerated student group on campus, and Joanne DeCaro who does work around lived experiences of, of incarceration. And we all together were just talking about what, what can we do to raise awareness and bring the community together? And, and we did a few different things. We wrote some op-eds about how prisons aren't closed institutions. We started a campaign on campus to collect, um, to fundraise, to donate protective equipment to the prisons because early in the spring, um, one of the big things we were hearing was people just didn't have, there were no masks, there, were, there was nothing, there was no soap to clean with. And it was just exacerbating the fear and the spread of the virus. And in the process of starting that just small local fundraising campaign among our university community, we realized that there were so many people who were desperate to tell their story and cut off from their communities. There has been no in-person visiting in the prisons in over a year since the pandemic started. And people's ability to even leave their cells has been limited. And so it's hard for them to get out to make a phone call. And that means that we, as people living you know, in the state outside of these facilities, have no idea what the lived experience is day to day. And so as we started to try to do this fundraising and gather a few stories to just you know, tell people outside of prison what was happening inside, 
we realized that there were just dozens of people desperate to tell their stories as we networked a little. And so we started collecting them and trying to figure out what to do with them and be a resource for people to know that someone was listening. And what we came up with was this website. It's now live as of the last week. It's called prisonpandemic.uci.edu. We worked with a number of web designers and developers, many of whom gave their time to us either pro bono or at discounted rates to put the site together. And And it's a wonderful website. Um, so we really started, you know, this is not a research project. This is an archive. This is meant to capture what's happening right now and give people a place where their stories can be heard and their voices amplified. And we started just trying to figure out the best way, right, the best way to collect and publish these stories. And so we're doing that in two ways. We run a hotline Monday through Friday, 5 to 9 p.m. It's a collect call number. So anyone in a California state prison can call It's staffed by graduate and undergraduate students, and they can just tell us what they experienced during the pandemic, and we record that. And so those recordings are on the website. We've learned in this process that it's really hard for people to make phone calls. You know, they often only get 10, 15 minutes a day. Um, If if they can afford that, right, because it's an expensive proposition. It is. It's a collect call always. So it's if the recipient can afford it, ironically. And so that's why it's important that our line accepts those calls. But it does mean that people, um, if they do have those 10, 15 minutes, sometimes they're prioritizing calling their families. So we also set up a P.O. box and we get dozens of letters a week and we work to transcribe those letters. And then we have students read them out loud so that you have the experience, just like the phone call of hearing the voices and seeing the text on the website. And in order to do this, so I I mentioned the five of us, the two other professors and the two doctoral students, but we have had teams of undergraduates every quarter, fall, winter, spring. In spring, we will have 80 working on our team, helping us do this. They man the hotlines, they transcribe the files, they help us. Everything is sorted by theme into two to three minute segments. So they help us kind of sort and label by theme. They help edit the audio files. So this has become, I mean, it's one of the things I've really loved about this project is not only is it creating this archive that will capture this moment in time and attempting to amplify these voices who we might not otherwise hear, but it's also become this opportunity to educate our undergraduates and to have this really phenomenal, I think, kind of real world experience of what it means to create a living archive and contribute to that project and feel like, you know, the undergraduates who worked with us in winter quarter saw the website launch in the final week of the quarter. So what an exciting way to have a class where then use this phenomenal product at the end. So that's been kind of a silver lining for me is that in this really remote time when I've missed being in the classroom, I've had this opportunity to work with and get to know these really passionate undergraduates and for them to have this chance to kind of see, you know, both learn about the prison system and and participate in building transparency. Well, hugely. And so I would like, let's listen to one segment. And if you would like to comment on what it brings to bear about the setting the sort of responsiveness of the institution to the needs and all of the aspects involved. Mm -hmm. Of course, they fear for my life and they fear for my safety. And of course, my wife misses me terribly and wants to visit me and friends and family can't do that. So everybody's, they're afraid because they know it's, it's so many people, it's so overcrowded in here that when an outbreak happens in a prison, there's no way they can isolate the person or the people that that come in contact with, especially in an open open dorm with like ten or twelve people in a small dorm, it's not it's not possible. So they worry about me a lot. 
So can you comment on that that one sample? I think in the, in the interest of time, we'll only get to hear one, but people can go to the archive, to the website and hear more. So Kermit, can you comment? Yes, Claudia. I'm so glad that we could play because I think it's why we started this project. The voices of the people incarcerated are so much more eloquent and powerful than I could ever be to hear it from the combination of things that they're experiencing all at once. And I think this story highlighted a lot of things that we've heard again and again. There are hundreds of stories on the website. You know, one is just the fear, the overwhelming fear of being trapped in this facility, not knowing when this will end, having limited information, knowing that you can't follow any of the protocols everyone else is following in society to stay safe knowing that if you do get sick, you might be put into solitary confinement and have even less contact. And knowing that if you get really, really sick, you might have inadequate health care. So I think, you know, if, if we have all experienced fear on a day-to-day -day basis, I think one of the really powerful themes in these stories is just that fear is exponentially greater when you're locked behind the closed doors of a prison. And, and that relates to the overcrowding, right? This is another theme that this particular story highlighted that social distancing, you know, the phrase social distancing is impossible, forget it, has come up again and again. And that's because, you know, the prisons are overcrowded and many people are living in dorms in bunks two or three high. And the idea that you could stay six feet apart from anyone, let alone hundreds of people is just unimaginable. There's no way to segregate populations. And so I think to the extent incarcerated people are watching the news and hearing about what everybody's doing in society and then looking around and saying, how could I not get incredibly sick and, and be part of a spread? And, and indeed, we've seen that, right, when we talk about infection rates at 60% or higher. So I think those are two big themes. And, and a third I would highlight is family, right? Just the idea, imagine, I mean, some of the most poignant stories to me are the ones of people who talk about not seeing their kids for a year, visually even, right? There hasn't even been video visitation until recently, let alone not being able to touch their wife or their child, at least shake their hands like they would be able to on a family visit and what that is doing to, to people and, and their connections to the outside world and their, their well-being is, is really hard to even fathom. Medieval. It just seems so utterly medieval. So, so dark, dark ages. And it's 2021 when I check my calendar. <laughs> it's hard to know what year we're in sometimes for so many reasons. <laughs> yes. So let's let people know. We've got lots of assignments for everybody to <laughs> dig out. There's so much debris here. Talk about Kermit, what listeners can do. We're already suggesting how we engage each other. We bring this to each other in everyday conversation. We go out of our way to bring this up because we're mm -hmm. a part of the society that the detainees are in. We're all in this society. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And that's why we built the website, right? People ask me all the time when I tell these stories, what can I do? And now there's this website. And really, one of the easiest things you can do is just go visit the website and share it with one other person. I know it seems simple and silly, but our entire purpose with this was, one, build transparency. We don't know what's happening in our prisons. We want there to be more access to that. And we want people to understand. And two, give people a voice. People inside have been silenced. They haven't even been able to contact their families. Amplify those voices of what they're experiencing. So simply by going to prisonpandemic.uci.edu and listening to some of these stories and then telling someone else about it, you're participating, right? You're participating in making these institutions more transparent and amplifying these voices. 
if you really like the site, you know, we encourage you to share it. We want more people to know there is a donate button. We're still trying to figure out how to make this sustainable in terms of getting, you know, dozens of stories a week up on the site and maintaining the scale of kind of data storage we need and, and updating the site. You know, we'd love to make it even more searchable by more specific topics. And another thing that we really, we've been encouraging people to do since we started that campaign this summer to raise money for protective equipment is just call Governor Gavin Newsom, call your elected officials and tell them how important it is to reduce overcrowding in the prison system. The one thing that everybody knows, the best way to reduce the spread of the virus, right? I mean, that's what we've all been doing, limit your human contact. And one thing we can do is limit the number of people in prison, reduce the population, let people out who only have a couple days or weeks left on their sentence, who are so sick that they couldn't hurt anyone anyway, right? They would be in hospice. Why should they be in prison? Let people out who haven't committed an infraction in years. You know, the state is in the process of rethinking sentencing and reducing long sentences especially for less serious crimes. And I think this is a perfect moment to reduce the prison population. And that's a simple, simple ask for your legislators and elected officials. And it's something a lot of people, you know, people might agree, disagree about exactly what policies to implement, but I think there's widespread agreement that there are people who could safely be released from prison and that that would help. Every, everyone helps in that sense. And it's an, it's an easy ask. Excellent. And so I give you an opportunity to, since you bring up appealing to Governor Newsom's office, how would you assess his management, his priority setting, and talk about that complicated situation, that huge transfer of detainees that were infected with knowingly, or they were not knowingly if infected from the Chino to the San Quentin mm-hmm. prison? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I'll, say, I'll say a few things about the state's management, and I'll try to end on a positive note because I think things have improved a little one thing is the is the administrative management and and there it, there's not much positive to say about the ways in which the virus spread like wildfire in the prisons in part because of transfers of prisoners from infected from one infected unit to another within prisons and between prisons and that's you know the the transfer of people from Chino to San Quentin got a lot of attention because San Quentin had a very low infection rate this summer and then they a, a bus full of prisoners from a unit that had been infected was transferred to San Quentin and the the virus just overtook the prison to the point where there were hospital tents in the yards. Dozens of people died. More than a thousand were infected at one point at the same time and it got national attention. And, you know, people talked about it as just a, a big gaffe that they had transferred these infected incarcerated people from one facility to another. But I think that's how the infection rates have been so bad throughout the state, right, is that people have been being moved around throughout the crisis. And that's and that's been part of the lack of, of control of the pandemic in our prisons. And so, you know, San Quentin gets a lot of attention, but I think there's just been mismanagement in terms of not having a plan about how to create safe spaces to segregate people and not move people around and exacerbate infection rates. And that's it's really sad to read about because especially in San Francisco, public health professionals were saying to the prison system, here's what you can do to prepare. Here's how you can have enough protective equipment, create some units where people can be separated from each other. Um, and they just they just didn't do that work. And that, you know, at some point one does have to look higher up. And, and I think there have been many movements to reduce the populations and, and encourage more people to be released. And I think that's a place where, you know, even above the level of the prison system, our, our elected officials were slow to do that and never released in the numbers people had hoped, which I think would have saved lives and certainly saved lives of prisoners and of staff in terms of reducing infections and, and making a little more distancing possible. 
so that's the really frustrated critique with the hindsight of how much how much better things could have been with some more intervention that simply followed what people were suggesting anyway. Um, but I will say I am really proud of what California has done to vaccinate people inside. Um, the latest numbers I've seen are that 40% of people in our prisons have been vaccinated and some states are refusing to vaccinate prisoners at all. So that's a place where I think we're really setting the trend. I mean, there is an understanding in this state that those infection rates in our prisons are scary and affect our communities and that we need to vaccinate those populations. And I'm, I'm really glad to see that wisdom playing out, at least even if it was hard earned and took too many infections and too many deaths to get there. It was an interesting piece in the New York Times that was in the printed edition on March 18th by Anne Klein and mm -hmm. Derek Norman. Uh, inmates' access to vaccines varies widely by state. But I just mm -hmm. want to quickly get back to whose call was it to move those detainees from Chino to San Quentin, Karamit? <laughs> you know, I'll say what I often say about the prison system, which is we don't know anywhere near as much as we should. And that's why we started prison pandemic. And I think we may never know who actually made the final call. In the end, I think someone resigned over that, you know, someone who had some control over transfers, but it's hard to know. And there's just, the prison system is very opaque and there's no reason to make those kinds of decision-making and the participants particularly transparent because there is a potential for a lot of backlash. But I think, you know, it could have been an officer on that day who decided to drive that bus and didn't look at the infections. It could have been a warden. It could have been much higher. And, you know, I think what's important to understand is that those decisions are made every day throughout the prison system. And it wasn't just that one. I think it's more valuable to perhaps to focus on the culture and why there wasn't why there weren't better policies in place and why they weren't doing the kinds of things that were being recommended at a state level in terms of the 35 prisons across the state, rather than thinking about, is there one person to blame? Because I don't think there is one. I think it's a more pervasive culture issue. Okay. And you as an academic in the, all of the nuances that you have been researching over the decades now, then that is how you can sort of intellectually take in that development that you understand it's the culture and that the fact that you mm -hmm. that it's such an opaque sort of decision-making system uh, it's not you've already experienced the affront in the immovable culture in the carceral mm -hmm. system mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay and I, you know i think if we if we knew who had made that decision we'd have a different system <laughs> right and it would be a better system good point well thank you <laughs> yeah. well that's another tool necessary on the belt is to sort of not just to dim the pandemic, but to dim the culture and yes. yeah. Well, I wanna thank you, Kermit, for your time and for your commitment to an underestimated demographic segment in our society. Thank you so much for this interview with you again. Thank you so much, Claudia, for covering this. My guest was Kermit Ryder, UCI Professor of Criminology, Law and Society, UCI School of Law, and director of Lifted, the prison education program in the UC system, talking today about prison pandemic, stories from the inside, an ongoing project compiling voices of and about incarcerated people in California. All of the websites, the social media handle, the address will be included in the summary along with this podcast. Well, the like the beginning of March, they weren't really doing nothing. They didn't pass out like no masks, no nothing. They started passing out, they started giving us masks when people were getting sick already. That's when they were, 
yeah, that's the one. That's when they started like, you know, supposedly like trying to take it serious, but they weren't really taking it too serious because they were still mixing the yards. They were still allowing uh, allowing other people from other yards to come to this yard, and like they were like moving people around. You know, when other that when the the people that were moving over here, they were really <laughs> sick. And that's how we all started getting sick. Before I close, next week is the spring schedule for Radio KUCI. So go to KUCI.org for the program's new times, including this one. Next up, Jarrett Lovell with the Dreadzel. Enjoy his vibe, won't you? Talk to you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Yeah, yeah.